Revelation chapter 21. One of the things that I have tried not to do too much of in our dovetailing our Bible teaching ministries with our worship and preaching ministries is to not preach on the same text that we studied in Sunday school except every now and then. And this is one of those every now and then because this passage is so critical, I believe, to our understanding not just of the book of Revelation but really to all of Scripture and the pattern of Scripture that I wanted to take time to go beyond what you've already done in Bible study and do some summarizing and help us to see some things from this passage. So I want to invite you to join with me as we read, as I read, if you'll follow along, from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven, or from the throne, excuse me, look, God's dwelling is with humankind, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will exist no longer. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I make everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the thirsty from the spring of living water as a gift. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we allow your spirit to expose it to our hearts, that we will see it as a plumb line by which we must all be measured. I pray that in your will and according to your plan, you might touch the hearts of those who are here today the way you have touched mine as I have studied and prepared and listened to this passage. And I pray that you will help us not just to hear but to apply and to respond from our own lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you that are old enough to remember Sunday nights in the 1960s and 70s, there was a perennial battle if you were an evangelical Christian. Every Sunday night, every Sunday night, there was a fight. Do we go to church or do we stay home and watch the wonderful world of Disney? That's right, and Bonanza. It was also on Sunday nights. Back in the days before, for you younger ones, back in the days before Disney put out 15 movies a month, it was a rarity. About once every three or four years, Disney would come out with a movie, but they had something on every Sunday night at 7 o'clock. And it was always about, when I was a kid, oh, but Dad, it's a Donald Duck. Can't we stay home just tonight? And every now and then my dad would give in and let me do it. But one of my favorite things about the Disney movies in those days, especially the old classic fairy tale movies, was it always started... I can't count how many of the Disney movies started with a huge book. 
plated with gold, it looked like, on the front. And they would open the book, and the, war, and, the, and the narrator would say, once upon a time, in a land far, far away. And you would open the book, and out of the book would come characters. A young girl who is not loved by her stepmother, and she's sent off and lives with seven little dwarfs. Or a young girl who has to sit by the fireplace and gets the name Cinderella and always wants to be like everybody else or whatever the story may be it always started with that book opening and you go through the story and you're fascinated you're caught up in the story and you see dragons and serpents and 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 young men with swords slaying and slashing and cutting through thorns to get to the princess and he finally finds her and gives her that golden kiss and she awakens from her sleep or whatever it may be and they're married and the very last thing they say is they ride off and she's waving to the crowd from the coach and they lived happily ever after. And no one ever talked about what happened the next morning when she burned the toast for her new groom. What happened when he saw her without her makeup on? What happened to her when she <laughs> smelled some of the... <laughs> well, we won't get into that. Let's talk about Grinch costumes, you know, I'm telling you. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, we would look so forward to certain things, going on vacation. When I was in, uh, in high school, I was in the Allstate Band, and we would go from Atlanta down to Savannah, Georgia for the Allstate Band, and we would look for, we'd practice for months, and we would be so excited, we would get down there, and, and we would have about two days of nonstop rehearsing and practicing and learning from some of the best conductors in the country. And we'd play a concert that night, and it was absolutely as close as humanly it could be to being perfect. And the next morning we got in the car and we had to drive all the way home. And it was the saddest day. It's that post-excitement letdown. I'm sure there's a name for that. That post-euphoria letdown. <sighs> and you know what? It was just when I was a kid. When we, when we got to Africa, we would leave our station to go to Nairobi. We'd get to go see our big boys. We'd go for medicals or meetings in Nairobi. We would drive four days and we would spend a wonderful time in Nairobi. We could actually eat real restaurant food it was amazing it was wonderful and we would go to places and see movies and all that and we would start the trip back home and about 45 minutes away from home I could just feel it rising up in me well I guess it's back to work now back to work have you ever wondered what happens the day after Jesus comes back I don't know about you but when I was a young minister even in my early adulthood I thought Sounds a little dull to me, standing around the throne for all of eternity, singing songs of praise, and people say, well, that's just because you're not spiritually mature yet. Okay, well, mature me a little bit, will you? Tell me how it's going to be fun for 30 million years to stand in front of, how many choruses have ever been on my lips can you sing? You know? There's got to be something else going on. And then all of a sudden, one day, actually, it was when I was getting ready for my very first Easter sermon here, I was awakened again reminded about the fact that heaven is not our final home not that place off in the beyond the clouds there is another place and there are a limitless number of new adventures i talked with a young couple been married about a year and they were having not some major problems but some issues and met with them met with them individually and together as a couple and i met with a young man one day and i said so tell me when did this start? He said, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you. I said, well, Dodd, just tell me, when, when did this struggle start? He said, the day after our wedding. He said, I woke up 
I said, I've waited for this all of my life. So what happens now? And I said, oh, dude, <laughs> you are in for thousands of adventures in your life. I said, yes, probably one of the greatest adventures next to becoming a Christian is finding the woman that God wants you to spend your life with. I said, but let me tell you, the adventures are just starting and they are going to grow and continue and move you forward in your life. And today we want to look at Revelation chapter 21 and find out what happens after we all see Jesus face to face. The Bible tells us in this book of Revelation that there is going to be this judgment on the earth. The enemies of God will be destroyed there will be a period of a thousand years. Some people believe it's metaphorical. I see no reason to believe that. I think it is a literal thousand years that we will reign and live with Christ here on this earth. And then there will be a time when Satan will be released for a short while to try to rally a one final attack that is quelched. And then the end actually finally comes. And that comes in Revelation chapter 21. And I think we can take these eight verses and divide them right in half. Verses 1 through 4 or to use Paul's line in Corinthians, the old has gone, and then verses 5 through 8, the new has come. So let's look at those two things for just a few moments, will you? Let's start with the old has gone. The former things have passed away. In verses 1 and 2, we find out about this new heaven, this new earth, this new city that we're going to have. In verse 1, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now you say, well, now why do we need a new one? Well, because the one we've got is messed up by sin. This earth that we live on now has been tainted and changed by sin. And whether this new earth means that God refreshes this earth back to the way he originally intended, or whether he just basically throws it out and makes a new one, is beyond my ability to even comprehend how that could happen. So I'm not even going to try to figure it out. All I know is, John says it was new. And the word new actually in this verse means a replacement. So I'll just take the word for what it says. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know what it's going to look like. Except I know it's not going to be the earth exactly like what we live on now. And you say, well, I kind of like the earth I live on now. Well, yeah, I do too. But I don't like the pollution that has corrupted it. I don't like the, 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 the cancers that have come because of previous generations' mistakes. I don't like the things that are in our air and in our water and in our earth. I, I, whatever God does, we need a place to live that will be as clean and perfect as we're going to be in that resurrected state as we spend eternity with God. So God creates a new earth. And the new heaven, I don't think it means the heaven is God's abode. I think it means the firmament, this area above the surface of the earth. You've got to remember in the ancient days, even into John's day, they understood that there was something between here and the stars, but in their mind it was like a huge dome that, was, that, was then, that the stars were placed in this dome, and then beyond that was where God was. And so it was almost like you were inside this big bubble. Because the scientific knowledge was fairly limited. No one had ever been high enough to even begin to understand there could probably be something beyond this blue expanse that we see over us. And so this new heaven is this atmospheric cloud around us. And the hint that we have about this is back in chapter 20 where it says that at the great white throne judgment, this final judgment, even earth and heaven flee from God's presence because it too is tainted by sin. So God makes this new heaven, this new earth, and... It says the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea existed no longer. One little footnote on that phrase. I normally jump right over it because it takes longer to explain than it's worth. First of all, I don't know if that means literally there will be no seas and oceans on the new earth or not. I don't know. It may very well mean that. I do know, though, that 
in the Israelites, in the Jewish days, in the early Christian days, the sea represented the unsettledness of the sinful world. Do you notice that all of the beasts in Revelation come up out of the sea? And the sea was where the sea monsters lived. And the sea was where the storms roiled. And so it may very well mean that there will not be all of that disruption, that chaos caused by sin in this new earth. But it may very well mean they don't need an ocean anymore. The Jews were terrified of water. They were not seagoing people. They were merchants, but the things were brought to them, and then they would trade them because they lived on this trade route between the north and east and the south and west all the way down into Egypt. And so they would bring things in from other places on the Mediterranean Sea, but they themselves very rarely were seafaring people. And so the sea was an enemy to them. So whether it is literal or not, I think the bottom line is the same, which is it will be a place of peace, a time of rest. It will not be full of chaos and turmoil and struggle. And then he goes on and explains a little bit further in verse 2. He says, I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Some people say, this is the people of God that are in heaven now. Could very well be. Some people say, no, it actually is a physical place where those people live. Could be. You look further down in chapter 21 and find out how big this place is, and I wonder if it really is a literal place or not, but the bottom line is, whatever it is, it comes from God, not from us. God brings his people and his presence down from the heavenly realms where he, where he has his throne now. We know he exists everywhere, but his throne is there. He brings it back down here on earth. He said, well, what significance is that? Oh, my. Remember when you memorized the Lord's Prayer as a kid? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the next line? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see why this is so important now? All of a sudden, at the end of time, when there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, the will of God in heaven comes down and dwells here on earth. And now, his will is done on earth, just as it is in heaven. And that prayer will be completed and will be prayed no more. His kingdom will have come. And so it's vitally important to understand that there's this uniting between the perfection of the heavenly realm and the sinfulness of the earthly realm, and we're all gathered together in one place. Those that have gone before us, those that are living at this time, whether you believe that it's a rapture, these people are saved in the tribulation, whether you believe that we go through the tribulation, it matters not. At this point, we're all back together in one place to live. And then we find out what's going to happen in this place, this new earth, this old place passing away it says i heard a loud voice from the throne obviously not god's voice because we have god speaking in just a minute but it's a voice saying look god's dwelling that's why we know it's not god talking god's dwelling is now with humanity with men well we know from a greek perspective that god lives everywhere he's omnipresent and yet in a real and and, an important way god's throne god's place of residence is now permanently with men do you remember when Moses was commanded to build the tabernacle, that little tent, that tent of meeting, they called it, and it was supposed to represent God's presence. They had the Ark of the Covenant with this mercy seat and the angels sitting on it, and that literally was God's throne. That was his footstool. That is where he would come and meet with Moses, meet with the people, and that Shekinah glory, that glowing presence of God, that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, represented the fact that God was in a real way right there with them, walking with them. Today we see it here within the church. It's the Holy Spirit unites us together. That's why I got to tell you, I begged Bruce and Brian to sing Build Your Kingdom here this morning. Because actually, when we planned this service, I thought this was going to be our last combined service. I didn't know we were going to wait one more week. I thought this was going to be it, and I wanted to finish with that song. 
So maybe we'll have to sing it again next week, okay? I don't know. But, but, but seriously, I, I love that song because what, what we're asking is for God's fire to be present so that we can see his glory among his people, but it's still a tainted presence, still tainted by our sin, by the way that we hurt each other, by the way that we hurt him by our sin, by all the things that we do that we wish we didn't. And you know what? Now he says God will dwell with us. He will make his presence real and palpable to us here on earth. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will exist no more. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no more because the previous things have passed away. You see, he starts these four verses at the top of verse 1. First heaven and first earth have passed away and the sea exists no more. And then the bottom it says the previous things have passed away. This is the life that used to be. Now I know when you die, if Jesus tarries, and you go to heaven, for you, death will exist no more. But it does for all the rest of us. But there is going to come a day when on this earth, death will exist no more. Brian Flatley made a great comment. Brian, if you're in here, I can't see you because I can't see past about the fifth row. But um, Brian made a wonderful comment this morning. I'm talking about what are you looking looking forward to most in heaven? He said, I'm looking forward to not thinking about my aging family members. I'm thinking, well, they're going to have to die because that's the ultimate risk. He said, I don't have to worry about that ever again. I won't ever have to worry about the fact that grandma's going to die. I said, isn't that great to know? No more death, which means no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness. This life here on this new earth will be all that God intended when he first created us at the beginning. And that's where we'll be. So that's the old one that has passed away and what's leaving. No more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. But something really interesting happens in verse 5. Just take a second real quick and look back in the first four verses. You start out with past tense verbs. I saw, had passed away, I saw the holy city, I heard a loud voice. And then in verses 3 and 4 you have future tense verbs. God's dwelling, it says is with men, but literally it is a, it is a well, I won't get into that. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away death, will exist no longer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then all of a sudden in verse 5, you don't have past tense verbs. You don't have future tense verbs. You have present tense verbs. You say, well, Pastor, now you're getting into English again. I hated grammar when I was in school. Please don't make it. Well, we've got to think a little bit about grammar because this matters. Because I believe that verses 5 through 8 is not God speaking about some time off in the future. I think his voice was piercing straight through the Apostle John, straight to those seven churches, and straight through them to us today. He is speaking in the present tense. He says, the one who is I am who I am, the one who is always present, I am saying to you right now, right here, where you are, listen, look, behold. I'm fixing to tell you something important. And then he says my favorite words in the entire book of Revelation. I make all things new. Now, if yours says I am making, that's okay, but it's wrong. Okay? It is not, it is not one of these continual presents. It is an active present. It is a stative present, it's called. You say, well, what difference does that make? Okay, I'll give you an example. Pastor, what is your job? Well, my job is I preach. I visit people. I care for those in need. I spend time in prayer. While you're doing that right now, I guess I'm preaching. But no, I'm not saying I am doing this. It's, this is what I do. If you ask Daryl Scare outside of his work here on staff, Daryl, what do you do? I'm a, I'm a builder. I build. 
That's not just saying I'm building right this second. It's that that is who I am. I'm a builder. I build. And you say, God, give us your job description in one sentence. You want to know my job description in one minute? In one sentence, I make things new. That's what I do. I make things new. So it doesn't matter how broken your life is, he can make it new. It doesn't matter how shattered your relationships are, he can make them new. It doesn't matter how wounded your life is, he can make it whole. It doesn't matter how off the path you are, he can make it right. He says, that is my job, that is what I do, that is the task I have given myself. I make things new. So it doesn't matter how messed up your life is now. It doesn't matter how deep the hole is in which you have dug yourself. It doesn't matter how, how hopeless your situation may seem. He says, look at me. I make things new. That's what I do. He says, I want you to know that. And that's the first of five things he says in these verses. The second thing is, look, write because these words are faithful and true. We've heard that line twice before, actually once before and once after by an angel. Now God himself says, John, I want you to write this down because it's faithful, you can put your confidence in it, and it is absolutely true. I did you a tremendous disservice about four or five years ago. I've repented of it, I've asked God to forgive me, and I hope I never do it again. I went through a time when once or twice a year, we would find a book, good books, Crazy Love, Radical, um, walk across the room. But what I found myself doing was I was standing behind this sacred desk and I was preaching to you what Francis Chan says about the Bible or what David Platt thinks about God's Word. That is not my task. My task is to preach God's Word. Now, I can recommend to you, I can give David Platt as an example. For example, David Platt says this, but my task is to open God's Word and to expose it. That's why we have Bible study at 845. We don't come to Bible study to talk about what someone else says about the Bible. We come to Bible study to study the Bible. And that's our task, is to study God's Word. What does it say? There's nothing wrong with bringing in a commentary or, or your, your, your Sunday school book, your learner guide or the leader guide that has ideas and suggestions. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that as long as you remember that our focus is God's Word. God said to John, listen, John, I want you to write this down because those seven churches and the people that are going to read this letter later on need to understand that I am faithful, I never waver, I never change, I never go back on my word, and I am true. What I'm telling you is not some myth, it's not some, some psychobabble sort of way to make you feel good about yourself, it is true. I love you, I have always loved you, and you can rely on me. And so if your faith begins to waver... That's fine. Go to, the, go to the Christian self-help section if that'll help. But what I want you to do is I want you to build your foundation around what do you hear in God's Word. When God says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Well, it doesn't feel like He's left me or forsaken me. Well, guess what? Is God wrong or are you? I don't mean that to sound unkind, but if God says, I will never leave you, and I say, well, I feel like you have left me, I must be out of kilter. I'm out of sync with where God would want me to be. So, Lord, what do I need to do so I can feel your presence again? That's exactly what David did in the 51st Psalm. The third thing he says, it is done. Now, we've heard that line before, haven't we? Let's just change the last word. We heard it is finished in John chapter 19. When Jesus is on the cross and he says it is finished, the work that he was sent to do, the task he was given. And it is so amazing. Next week, we're going to start in Genesis, brand new preaching series in Genesis, brand new Bible study series in Genesis, and we're going to be studying Genesis chapter 1 in Bible study, and then Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to talk about that rest because the work was completed. Jesus said it is 
finished. And then if you look in Revelation chapter 16, that when the angel pours out the last bowl of God's wrath, he says the judgment on earth now is finished. It is done. And now in Revelation 21, God himself says, everything that I had planned from eternity past to do up to this point is now finished. And now we're ready to go into eternity yet to come. It is finished. Aren't you glad that he's the one that does the finishing and not us? Aren't you glad that he is able to say, I finished what I started? Aren't you thankful to know that he will never, ever forsake the task that he has given himself to do on our behalf? It is done. He follows it up by saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God was there before time started. He will be there when time ceases to have meaning. But guess what that means? He's at all points in between too, isn't he? Which means he is right here now for you. He is right here now for you. Whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're having to face, whatever the difficulties are, whatever the night terrors are that come to you, whatever the things are that drag you down into its mire and muck, he says, you don't forget, I am the beginning, I am the end, I am at every point in between. I am here with you. You can trust me. You can count on me. And then he says, I will give to the thirsty from the spring of living water as a gift. Who are the thirsty? They are those who are thirsting for God. Jesus talked about this in his Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. God says, those who are thirsty, those who have endured, that have have worked the hard battle. I walked for over an hour in that silly costume last night. Thank goodness it wasn't hot yesterday. But I got to tell you, I was, uh, I, was licking, I was licking mustache sweat there toward the end of that thing. And, and Sharon kept saying, you want something to drink? It's like, how do you drink with this thing on, you know? There was a little bitty slit in the mouth, and I might could have stuck my tongue out for, you know, like, like Rich Man and Lazarus, you know, for a drip of water on my tongue. But it really couldn't do a lot. Of, but I want to tell you, when that, when that thing came off, I grabbed that bottle, and, 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 and Miss Lisa said, well, it's not very cold. I said, I don't care. <laughs> Just give it to me. And I was, I was hydrating, buddy. I was thirsty. I, had, I said, I am not going to get out of character. I don't want one child to see me without my mask on. I want to be the Grinch until we get to the end of the parade. We got down past the UCC church. I snuck down behind and I took that thing off and took a big gulp of water. But my point of that is, the one that is thirsty is the one that has stuck it out. That is, remember last week we talked about standing firm? The one that has been there, the one that works hard, the one that finishes the task, the one that's there, and then they're thirsty. He says, I'm going to give you from the water of life free of charge. Now, I can tell you what. I only know of two things that are free. Either something that's not worth anything or something that someone else has already paid for for you. You see, the reason that water is free is because somebody gave his life so that you could have that water. Somebody poured out his blood, paid the price for that spring of living water so that you could take a taste. I think I have time to say this quickly before we finish. This is me, okay? You've got to understand, this is just me. This is not scripture. Now, just let me step aside for just a second. I hope that that is a literal truth that will literally occur. Now, in one sense, every one of us, the minute we accepted Jesus Christ, he gave us the living water of life. Remember when Jesus said, I am the water of life, anyone that's thirsty can come to me and drink? I think we accepted Christ in a spiritual sense. But wouldn't you love, would not you love, I mean, just, if I'm just crazy, you can send me a text message. Don't tell me to my face, you make me cry. But wouldn't it be wonderful if in a resurrected sinless body, which I believe will still be a lot like the bodies we have now, except they're just not going to be corrupted by sin. 
we're going to come over to a literal spring of sweet water. And we're going to cup our hands and we're going to drink for the very first time real, the real (sighs) water of life. I hope that's the way it's going to be because I would love to be able to scoop that water up in my hands and put it to my mouth and say, Jesus, thank you for purchasing my salvation so I could drink this and step into eternity with you. But if not, I'll probably be too happy. I won't even remember I said that, so, but either way. Let's finish up with verses 7 and 8. He describes who these people are that are thirsty. He describes them as victors. Verse 7, the victor will inherit all these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my daughter, my child. One of the things we've had to wrestle with throughout the book of Revelation is understanding the difference between losing your salvation and not sincerely having salvation. John had no problem. This is the same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, remember? He who says he is without sin is only lying to himself. He who continues to live in sin does not have the life in him, the light in him. John understood that those of us who have truly surrendered our lives to Christ, who have cast in our lot with God and with his people, most certainly will go through difficult times, but we will endure, although it may be with great difficulty, although it may be with great temptation, although we may slip. Peter slipped three times, but he repented, and God still, Christ still forgave him and loved him and used him. So there may be times when we slip, but that will not be our nature, that will not be our desire, that will not be our purpose. But there will be others of us who have sat in this room and rooms like this, and week after week after week, given lip service to something we really do not trust. We only believe in it for what it will gain for us, how we will benefit, what we will receive. And then when the pressure gets on, then when the difficulties come, then when the trials really begin, we begin to say, you know, I'm just not sure it's worth it. I'm not sure it's worth it for me to stick with this. And we step away and we deny the one. And we show our true colors. One translation using the word, the word victor uses the word conqueror. Those who have conquered those who have found success, those who have had victory over the temptation to knuckle under to the world, to its allures, will inherit these things. And then he makes a list of all the ones that won't. And really, this isn't a random list. It's a list that kind of describes everything he's talked about in the book. He talks about unbelievers, people who don't truly believe. He talks about those who are vile, who do evil things and don't want to do the things of God. People who are murderers, and maybe that means even some who literally do murder, but there's also those who kill people's reputations, who kill those that do good, who don't want to follow what God would say. There are those who are sexually immoral, both physically and spiritually. There are those who are sorcerers, who rely in other powers and other ways to gain what they want rather than putting their trust in God. Those who are idolaters, who build idols in their lives that they put in place of God or actually make to represent God those that tell lies, those who are not standing for the truth but standing for lies. But the first word on that list is the one I think is the most important, and that is the word cowards. Because God wanted us to understand that those of us who think that we've got it all together because we've said the prayer and checked the box on the pamphlet and filled out the card and went through the water, we're good, we're fine. Well, what about your life for God now? Well, I'm just doing the best I can until it's time to go. I guess I'm, I'm all right. Are you growing in your Christian walk? Well, I, I, I've learned a few Bible verses. I, I guess I am. Are you feeling a deeper relationship with God? I don't really know what you mean when you say that kind of thing to me. Are you feeling that you have this Holy Spirit leading and guiding you? Well, I, I, I try to think through things before I make rash decisions. and Then all of a sudden, there's only one promotion up, and you kind of get the word that because the boss is not a Christian, he's not wanting any Bible thumpers working on the team with him and 
So you kind of keep that to yourself and don't talk about it. And then you start getting asked direct questions. Well, you don't believe this and that. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I just go to church because my wife wants me to go. Or I'm just there because it's good for the kids. But no, I just, I'm not really a part of that. I mean, you know, I, I, I enjoy going. I get some good ideas, but it's not really who I am. It's not really what I see myself being. Good, good. You're a team player, then we're glad to have you on board. And we stand one day, and Jesus, I believe through tears, will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Beloved, this passage can give you tremendous hope when struggles come. And I don't mean cataclysmic suffering. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. There may come a day when someone will stand up in the state legislature or in the county courthouse, county commission office, and say, can somebody remind me again why it is that we don't charge churches property taxes? Other nonprofits pay property taxes. Why are we giving the churches special exemption? What are they bringing economically to our community? They, they take in $10,000 a week. Surely they should be taxed like every other entity. But I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the things that we go through every day in our lives. Well, you don't really believe that stuff you hear at church, do you? Oh, well, no, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I, it helps me feel better, but um, no, not really, I don't guess, no. Not everything, you know. And the pressure begins to come on us, and Satan knows where our weak points are, and he begins to bring temptation into our lives. And for those of us who are true believers, we see that. And even though we may fall, we repent and we come back and we say, Father, forgive me and help me to live the kind of life that you would want me to live. Help me to be the person that you would want me to be. And he says, go back and read Revelation again. Because I want you to remember that when things get tough, when they put the thumbscrews on you, when you think you may lose your job or you may not get that promotion or you may not get to do this thing or that thing because you're an outspoken believer, just remember, this is not the end of the story. As Stephen Curtis Chapman said eons ago, there's more to this life than living and dying. More than just trying to make it through another day. How we live this life determines where we will spend eternity. And so let me encourage you as a believer, because believe me, if you haven't been attacked by Satan, it's because you're not living close enough to God that he really cares about you. But you start getting your life right with God. You got to start really serving him, committed to him. Satan's going to say, oh, well, listen, you just watch. This is Job all over again. You just let me touch this person and watch how they crumble. And he'll begin to bring. And God will allow him to do that. You say, well, why would God allow that? To help you get stronger. To help you continue to grow. To bring you closer to him. So you learn to cry out to him. So for you, this should be great encouragement to know that when these struggles come, this is just God's way of adorning you so that you will be a bride ready to meet your bridegroom someday. But if you've been playing games with God and with me and with this church and with yourself, thinking that just a, oh yeah, sure, I, Jesus died on the cross, I believe that, died for me, sure, I believe that. Need him in my life? Yeah, I guess, sure, whatever. What it really was, I want to be able to date Sally Mae over here and she says that, I can't date her unless I join the church. So I'm going to join the church so I can date Sally Mae. And we'll get married and have seven kids and live on the farm. And then I don't have to worry about it anymore. Because every Sunday morning I'll have chores to do. And she can take the kids to church and I'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. 
You'll be fine. Let's pray together. Father, with all my heart, I want to believe there's not a single person in this room that's like that. I, w- I want so much to believe that Billy Graham was wrong about my church. That surely there's not people in this room who haven't truly surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. These are people who love you, who would give their lives for you, for what you've done for them. But Father, if there's just one, it's worth the time we've taken today to talk about it. If there's just one here today that has given lip service to the gospel and yet has never truly surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that the convicting power of your Holy Spirit will overwhelm them and that if need be, they will run down this aisle and fall on their knees and say, I need to be saved. I've been playing a game. I've been going through the motions. Fathers, there, Father, there are others of us here who truly are your children. We love you. We've surrendered our lives to you. But we're still human. And we still get scared. And we fall back into old patterns of trying to fix our own problems and find our own solutions rather than trusting you. And Lord, you've told us in this passage that if we would just look ahead, that you are in the process of making everything new, including us, and you are forming us and shaping us and molding us. Sometimes that means we have to go through tough times. We have to go through hard stuff. As you chip away from our lives the things that should not be there. We see it as loss. You see it as molding and shaping. You see the ultimate gain in it. And I pray that we will yield ourselves into the potter's hands. That as you mold us and shape us, as you prune us, that we will know that even though it may hurt in the now, you are adorning us. You are preparing us to be a bride fit to meet our groom when Jesus comes. So Father, wherever we are in our walk right now, I would ask that you speak to our hearts, move in our lives, and help us to respond. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.